Old Testament where we can find the Ten Commandments. The first is in the book of Exodus. The people of God have left behind enslavement in Egypt. God, working through Moses, has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And they come to Mount Sinai where Moses brings down the Ten Commandments on these two stone tablets, these concise expressions of the law, these concise expressions of who God is calling these people to be. And the second place is what I just read here this morning in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are on the edge of the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land. They have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and Moses has been leading them for these 40 years. But now on the edge of the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land, Moses is not going to be going with them. Their leader for these last 40 years is not going to go with them. Instead, this new young guy named Joshua is going to be leading them. A leader who's been around for decades, followed by some new young guy. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) So in the words of a couple of commentators, Deuteronomy is structured as this pep talk from Moses, this final speech from Moses that as these people begin this new chapter in their history. And so here at the beginning of that pep talk, Moses recounts the Ten Commandments given at Sinai. The commandments don't change between Exodus and Deuteronomy. One through ten are exactly the same. But what's interesting is the rationale for observing the Sabbath is different between Exodus and Deuteronomy. In Exodus, the rationale is that the people of God are supposed to rest once every seven days because God, in the book of Genesis, after creating everything that exists, stops and rests after the six days of creation. But here in Deuteronomy, the people are commanded to rest because they are to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. We spent the summer in the book of Genesis in that messy and dysfunctional family reunion that the families of Genesis are. And remember, at the end of that family reunion, the people end up in Egypt because of a famine. But as often and unfortunately happens with foreigners living in a place that is not their homeland, They become the object of suspicion, and they are targeted as potential threats to the social stability. So this new pharaoh rises to power generations and generations after the the Hebrews first ended up in Egypt, and he looks around and says, what is with all of these people who are not Egyptians living in our homeland? If I don't take steps, then our way of life will be gone. And So pharaoh enslaves the Hebrews, and they are put to work producing for him. The people of God become Pharaoh's commodities. They are worth only what they can produce for him. They build storehouses for Pharaoh, places where wealth and food are held, but they themselves would not have access to its resources. They build monuments and palaces. They are overworked and they overproduce because that is their only value to Pharaoh. For 400 years, this is how they lived and how they died. Generations come and go as slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt. And that was until God raised up Moses for them, who with deeds of power liberated the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and they walked into freedom. But as you know, they say that you can take someone out of a place, but you can't take that place out of the person. You can take me out of Chicago, but you can't take the Chicago out of me. You can put a Detroit Tigers hat on my head, and I'll gladly cheer for the Detroit Tigers, but I'm still a Cubs fan. I still bleed cubby blue. You can take the slaves out of slavery and enslavement in Egypt, but that mentality that they have lived with for generations and generations is still going to be there. 
And so they are in need of a new mindset, a new frame of reference, a new understanding. Place yourself in their shoes for just a minute. Think about the fact that if you were a slave in Egypt, as our ancestors in faith were, and you were suddenly given your freedom, place yourself in the shoes of someone who lived their whole life knowing only slavery, and not only were you a slave, but your parents were slaves, your grandparents were slaves, as far back as you could look in your family tree. That was all that you knew. You look around and it's the same story that all of your neighbors told, the same story that the people who looked and talked like you told. Imagine that you had lived your entire life under the authority of a leader who attributed your only value, the only value of your life, to what you could create for him. Your worth was your production value. And so he overworked you and overproduced from your labor because it was never enough. Person, this person not only was the ruler of the nation you lived in, but he fashioned himself as a god, someone who could give ultimate meaning to your life. And now all of a sudden there is another god who has liberated you from slavery and who has given you freedom. Imagine how those attitudes and those practices you have lived your entire life with will go with you as you walk into this new chapter in your, in your life story. And you have heard the stories about this God, how this God made promises to your ancestors, how this God created the world with loving hands. And now as you follow God from enslavement into freedom, you might be wondering, what are you worth to this God? Was it going to be like Egypt where you were only worth what you could produce and what you could create? Were you going to be a commodity just like before? But that's what Moses reminds the people of on the edge of realizing God's promises to them is that that God calls them to a different way of life, uh, of loving God and loving neighbor. And right smack in the middle of these commandments is the longest one. And the commandment is not about how many bricks you have to make, about how much work you have to do. No, the longest commandment is that once a week, you and everybody around you gets to stop and to rest. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, God says. Remember that you were worth once only what you could produce and what you could create. And what God says is that once a week, you get to stop everything. Because you are worth more to me than you were worth to Pharaoh. You're worth drastically more to me than you were worth to Pharaoh. You are worthy to me not because of what you can produce and what you can create. Yes, those things are important. The work that God calls us to is important. God says, that's not why I love you. Your identity is not tied to your market value. You are loved even when you are at rest and doing nothing. You are loved even when you are as useless as possible to other people. Remember that you are no longer a slave in Egypt, but you get to live into this new identity that has always been true, that you are the beloved children of God. It's the first Labor Day in history. And it doesn't come once a year, but it comes once a week. Once out of every seven days you stop and rest, God gifts the people with this pattern of resting, that they're not to work until they are exhausted and overwhelmed. They're not to overextend themselves to the point where they break down, but they are to to build into the fabric of their lives this pattern of resting, of, of stopping once every seven days, a time to remember who they are and whose they are. It's so easy for us to forget that this is a commandment, right? The commandment to rest. 
I mean, we get the other ones, right? No other gods before me. Don't create graven images. Don't kill. Don't steal. In fact, we're really good about enforcing those other commandments, or most of those other commandments. If I brought in a wooden idol and said, this is now the God that we worship and serve, we, we might have some problems, right? Out there in the world, if you cheat on your spouse, you're probably going to have some consequences to that action. If you murder someone, you'll probably end up in prison. But the Sabbath, a day of rest, there's really not much enforcement of that anymore. Gone are the days of blue laws that made sure that Sundays were designated as God's time. And honestly, those blue laws being gone is probably a good thing. I'm not sure how restful those actually were. In fact, I think the Sabbath is the only commandment that we brag about breaking. I'm too busy to take a Sabbath, I've heard people say to me. We have this this sort of fascination with being as busy as possible, that we become self-righteously busy. I think that this call to practice the Sabbath, to take time out of our busy lives for rest, has become even more urgent as we have lived through and continue to live through this global pandemic. With so many of us over the last year and a half working from home, that work-life balance has become skewed. There is a tendency towards what's known as toxic productivity. Another word for that is grind culture. My friend Garrett, when he was here for my installation service, he introduced us to that term and kind of prepared us for this sermon series. In an article from the Huffington Post, it stated that one of the results of this pandemic is that it's convinced us that we have to be useful and productive at all times. When all of our regular routines were on pause, think back to March and April of 2020, we had more free time than we normally would have had And instead of using that as an uh, an opportunity to be idle, to let our bodies and our souls and our minds rest, we instead felt like we need to become more productive than usual. Perhaps it comes from our Puritan roots of the American culture that idle hands are the devil's playground. Or maybe it comes from our great fear that if we constantly aren't doing, aren't working, then we won't achieve that ever-elusive American dream. Or as the psychologist Catherine Esquire stated, It was during a time of great insecurity that work and productivity gave us a sense of security. She continues by saying, we didn't stop once the workday ended either. We told ourselves that we'd learn a new language, we'd become an expert baker or master some skill we'd been putting off in the times before COVID. Someone on Twitter pushing this idea of toxic productivity wrote that if you don't come out of this quarantine with either one, a new skill, Two, starting what you've been putting off, like starting a new business, or more knowledge, number three, then you didn't ever lack the time, you lacked the discipline. Toxic productivity at its worst. We very much live in a culture that subscribes to the ideology of Pharaoh, that we are only worth what we can produce. Think about one of the most common questions that we ask someone when we meet them for the first time, what do you do for a living? As this pandemic continues on, I think it has exposed this propensity towards toxic productivity, that we must always be on, we must always be doing something, that we are viewed as commodities with market value. Even for those of you who are are retired, I'm sure that you still feel acutely that, that need to be constantly and always useful, to be always be being productive. You may feel that pressure and that anxiety that now that you are beyond your careers, you have to find something else in some other way to be always useful. 
as many parts of our lives have returned back to a sense of normal, are we still living with that pandemic mentality that we always need to be productive, always need to be doing something? Do we need to to detox from that idea that if we are idle, if we take time to address our own health and our own well-being, that there's something wrong with us? Has the convenience of Zoom meetings made us feel like we have to always be available to other people? Even when we're too tired, even when we don't want to join the Zoom meeting, has it convinced us that we have to always be available to other people? And this, of course, has a profound impact on our spiritual lives. If we, believe our, if we believe our worth is tied up in the production of goods and services and creating capital and wealth, then how does that shape our understanding of who God is? How easy can it be to begin to view God not as the God of liberation and the God of freedom, but the God of enslavement? How easy is it for us to view ourselves as insufficient and not good enough other than as beloved children of God? How easy does it become to view loving and serving our neighbors, not as expressions of love, but just simply as another chore, another thing that we have to do? Because that gift of the Sabbath has a lot to offer us. It helps us to reframe our mindset that our worthiness is not tied up in what we produce, that we are acceptable not because we overwork ourselves, Our value is not defined and decided by the market. Our value is found and grounded in the God who gives us life and breath, who sustains us at every moment of our lives. We are loved because God calls us beloved children, idleness, stillness, rest, being useless to other people. Those can be really good things, that God loves us even when we're not doing anything. And I say this to all of you not because I'm some expert on the Sabbath, but because I'm someone who's experienced the benefits of having that regular rhythm of rest in my own life. It was a practice that I started when I was a student at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, in New Jersey. And Princeton is a a great place. I, I really value the education that I receive there. But Princeton has this fatal flaw that sort of sucks everybody in. It's reducing people only to what they can produce and what they can create. That we were obsessed with filling our calendars as full as possible. We were self-righteously busy. We would brag and say, oh, I wish that I had time for a Sabbath. I wish I had time for a day off, as if it were something to be proud of. This pattern of working and producing, working and producing, working and producing, so that you could overwork and outproduce your other classmates. And I succumbed to it, too. In my my second year, on top of my full academic schedule, I was serving as a field education intern downtown Philadelphia at Broad Street Ministry, that community I've told you all about before. I was leading a Bible study there. I was offering pastoral care to homeless individuals. I was helping to lead worship. I was also working at a local chapter of a mental health nonprofit. I was uh, helping to lead a student social justice group. Working, producing, working, producing, working, and producing. Because I thought that if I wasn't constantly doing something, then I wasn't a very good seminary student, and certainly no church would ever look at me because they would think I would be a terrible pastor. But after all of that working and producing, I was exhausted. And so I decided to try something right there in the middle of the busiest academic year that I had while I was in seminary. I said, one day a week, I'm going to take a Sabbath. One day a week, I'm not going to produce or create anything. 
So I had no classes on Fridays, and so I said, I'm not going to set an alarm on Fridays. I'm going to let my body decide how much rest I need. Let, me, let my body determine when I need to wake up. And then if I wake up early enough, I'll go to chapel, because we had chapel five days a week, and Fridays were the days that they served communion. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to receive communion. And then I'm going to go and spend time with Heather, go see a movie, take a trip to New York City, do something fun, eat some really good food. We were talking about food before the service, too. I'm always talking about food. I'm going to take a break from overworking and overproducing and join a vision of the world that is at peace and at rest. I'm going to stop commodifying myself and others. And that's something that I've tried to carry with me into my ministry. And I say trying because I'm not always successful at it. I try once a week to stop and to rest, to not produce or create anything. Even when there's a lot to be done, even when ministry becomes busy and chaotic, as it does in September, as all of our activities get ready to gear up again, I'm going to stop once a week and rest. It's necessary for me to be the best pastor I can be to help serve this congregation. It's necessary for me to be the best husband and father I can be to stop and to rest, to take a break from working and producing. I have found that gift of the Sabbath to be life-giving and life-sustaining. It's a weekly reminder that we are the the beloved children of God, that we are not loved because of how good we are or how much we can do, but we are loved simply because we exist. And so over the next month, I'm encouraging you to begin to develop your own regular Sabbath patterns, your own patterns of stopping and resting, taking one 24-hour period a week where you're not working or producing anything. Now, for many of you, Sundays might be the easiest example of that, Sundays are not my days off. As much as I love preaching and leading worship, this is not restful for me. Uh, Sundays usually do end in rest. They end in a nap after church. But usually Fridays are the days that I, that 24-hour period where I stop working and stop producing. Because we are not slaves in Egypt. We are not cogs in the, the grinding machinery of Pharaoh. That we are the, the beloved and loved children of God. Love simply because we exist. We remember who we are and whose we are every time we stop and we rest. That we are good enough. And in idleness and stillness, God loves us. Blessings as you begin your own Sabbath journey. Thanks be to God. Amen.